Hey there, and welcome to Talking Out. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm Steve Newsom, and we are coming to you via podcast from our good friends at the offices of River City News here in beautiful Covington, Kentucky. Uh, we have no announcements for you today because we've got a jam-packed show, a very exciting guest joining us today. You might recognize his name. It's a little uh, different of a last name, but it became household, uh, household lingo as of last year. He's the named plaintiff in the marriage equality case. Jim Ogerbefell himself is here. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you on the program. We've had uh, some really great guests so far, but I, I think this is really one of our, our crowning episodes. So it's exciting to have you here. Uh, I understand that we're about to add a new title uh, to the long list of titles that you have, and that's author, right? Correct. Published author happens June 14th. Excellent. June 14th. Everything hits stores, right? So we can Everything just go to the bookstore and buy it. Correct. It's available for pre-order now through HarperCollins or on Amazon, but June 14th it'll be available in stores. That's exciting. Yes. So it's called Love Wins, right? Yes. And is it like an autobiography, or is it kind of a case, like a step-by-step on how the the case happened? Can you take us through a little bit about what the book's about? Yeah, absolutely. It is autobiographical in the theme that it's about John and me from childhood on, but it isn't just about us. It's also about L. Gerhard Stein, our attorney. It's about his life, his experience fighting for... Um, civil rights here in Cincinnati. It's about some of the other plaintiffs in the Supreme Court case. Um, Joe and Rob, who live in New York but adopted in Ohio. Pam and Nicole, who live in northern Kentucky, and their two children. It's about a couple of the judges. Judge Black, there's a little bit about him. Judge Daughtry from the Court of Appeals. And it's also about Cincinnati itself. The city of Cincinnati really is a character in the book because of the great changes we've seen in Cincinnati when it comes especially to LGBTQ rights over the past 20 years. Sure, absolutely. And those are everything, you know, a lot of those changes obviously championed by Chris Seelbach. Yes. Uh, it's funny that you mentioned Judge Black as a character in the, the book because he was sort of uh, the first judge that you guys uh, really encountered in the case. And this was the one where the city solicitor of the city of Cincinnati stood up and said, Your Honor, we actually don't disagree uh, with our, our friends here and we, we think that they should be uh, legally recognized as married. Can you talk a little bit about how Judge Black uh, dealt with his courtroom and how that experience was at the local level? Absolutely. You know, that was my first time in a federal courtroom. So going in, I was scared. I really didn't know what to expect. And the speed with which everything happened was amazing. We got married on Thursday, July 11th. We met Elle for the first time the following Tuesday, and we filed our case on Friday, July 19th. So Eight days after we got married, we filed our case. Three days later on Monday, June 22nd, or I'm sorry, July 22nd, we were in the courtroom. And it moved so quickly, but that's because we filed it that way because of John's health, because right. he was dying. So going into the courtroom was overwhelming. It was a little more, a bit more than frightening. And the nice thing was all testimony throughout the entire time was written. Never once did people get up on the stand and have to argue, have to take depositions, any of those types in the courtroom, so it was fairly nice. I did have the opportunity to take the stand and read a statement to Judge Black, which was a great opportunity for me to talk about what our marriage meant, what our relationship meant, and why it was important to us to have John's death certificate be accurate and reflect our marriage. And Judge Black just... He came across as a very warm, 
logical, kind person in the courtroom. Um, that's really about the only thing I can say. And speaking directly to him from the stand was quite an experience and sharing our story. And I just remember he was incredibly kind about John's health and wishing us well. And, you know, he was concerned about John. That came across from my perspective in the courtroom. Excellent. You know, it's, it's interesting to hear people talk about having a positive experience with uh, local judges because that, that's not necessarily always the case. You know, the, the courthouse in Hamilton County and even the federal courthouse uh, in Hamilton County is uh, a very Republican-driven area. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, at least there's a few uh, good judges out there still. So it's exciting to hear. Uh, so you guys went through the process really, really quickly on the local yes. level. And then what? We hit probably a brick wall when it came to uh, the case moving forward from there. Right. So we were in court. I was in court the afternoon of Monday, July 22nd. And at 5 p.m. that day, Judge Black released his ruling. And he ruled in our favor and issued a temporary injunction that forced the state of Ohio to complete John's death certificate correctly when he did pass away. And because it was a temporary injunction, the state couldn't appeal at that point. That's, that type of injunction cannot be appealed. So when I, sitting at home when we got the phone call about the decision, we knew at that point that when John died, his death certificate would be accurate. Within a month, we had additional plaintiffs join our case. David Michener um, lived here locally. His husband, Bill, died unexpectedly, and they have three children. So David found himself in the same situation I was in where his legally married spouse passed away and they wanted an accurate death certificate. And we also added Robert Gran, a local funeral director, to the case because he's the funeral director we used. And we added, he was added to the case from the perspective of the way the, the constitutional amendment was written and the requirements of funeral directors in essence, we said you're putting funeral directors in legal jeopardy because by law they're supposed to fill out that death certificate, death certificate correctly, but to fill it out correctly means they recognize a marriage of a same-sex couple that happened elsewhere, and yet this constitutional amendment says they can't do that. So we added Robert Grunt to the, to the case as well. And then shortly thereafter, Al Gerhardstein also filed a second suit having to do with birth certificates. So he had several couples here in Cincinnati as well as the couple from New York who adopted in Ohio. They filed suit to say our kids deserve an accurate birth certificate. And as parents, we deserve the same rights to have our, both of our names on those, death certificate, on those birth certificates. So that happened and they, they won their initial ruling. Once John died in October of 2000. 13, a couple months later, the state appealed. And at, when the birth certificate case want, was won, the state appealed that. And that's when we went to the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. So our two cases, as well as cases from Kentucky, Michigan, and Tennessee, were all consolidated. And in August, I think it was, of 2014, we were in appeals court fighting to keep our wins intact. And unfortunately, in November of 2014, the Sixth Circuit ruled against us. And that's how we ended up with the Supreme Court, right? Correct. Yeah. So 
you guys got that process started almost, uh, it, it's almost two years to the day, right? Uh, between the time that you filed that initial lawsuit and uh, actually received a ruling from the, the Supreme Court. It is, which I think about that, and to me that seems like a really short time frame for a case from start to Supreme Court decision. Sure. Especially one that created such a you know massive uh, ruling that that changed the course of uh, the history of this country, really. Yeah. Um, so is it funny to hear or see your name on all these legal documents and have people quoting Obergefell as their their point counterpoint on CNN or, or seeing it in the Wall Street Journal as uh, as case law? Is it what's it like seeing that? It's really odd, Steve. Honestly, I have to remind myself when I see it or even when I hear it, I almost have to pinch myself and say, that's you, that's you, you're Obergefell, because it doesn't seem possible when I hear that, when I see it, that it's actually referring to me. For some reason, it still doesn't quite feel real. Life has just been surreal from the start of this, and I'm not sure when it's gonna really sink in, and when I stop thinking, that can't be me, but it is. (laughs) (laughs) So, one of the the big things that that I always had on on my mind with any of these cases uh, is, what is it like inside the Supreme Court? You know, I've been inside the chambers, but not when they were arguing a case. And obviously no uh, television cameras are allowed in, no press are allowed in. You just get that one uh, courtroom uh, guy that's in there drawing doodles of what, what it looks like in the courtroom. Can you talk a little bit about what the Supreme Court justices were doing while you were arguing the case, what people in the audience were doing, and, and take us through kind of what was going on in your head while you were listening to all of this. Yeah, absolutely. So it wasn't until a week before oral arguments that all of the plaintiffs, we learned that the court actually set aside seats for us because they don't, they don't do that automatically. Really? No, they, they don't. So we found out huh. a week before that they were going to set aside specific seats for the plaintiffs for the six cases, but the plaintiffs had to make a decision, you know, because we, the court was arguing two points, the right to marry and the right to recognition of lawful out-of-state marriages. And the plaintiffs all had to decide, do we want to sit in the courtroom for the arguments on the right to marry or in the courtroom for the arguments for the right to recognition? Because the court wasn't going to allow all 30 plus of us or whoever was there to sit in the courtroom for the entire two and a half hours. Sure, so you guys had to do it in shifts. Right. Now, I was fortunate because I had a relationship with an organization that worked with me and actually was able to get me into the courtroom for the entire two and a half hours through the public line. So I stood in line in front of the courthouse along with Aunt Paulette, who John's aunt, who married us. So Aunt Paulette and I were in the courtroom. And for me, it was, it was nice because we were just out in the courtroom and people really didn't know who I was. So I got to sit there and be somewhat anonymous. That didn't last long, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, um, At some point we were talking and I think it was Aunt Paulette let slip. Well, I I say let slip, but it wasn't a bad thing. But she made a comment to one of the people around us, well, do you know who, who this is, referring to me? And she said who I was. And the gentleman sitting right in front of me who is from Youngstown in law school in Chicago just burst into tears. And he pretty much had tears in his eyes every time he turned around and looked at me. And the experience I remember most from that courtroom is the gentleman who was sitting on my left. We were talking and he said, you know, Jim, I have to tell you, your story, your and John's story, really touched someone this morning. I'm a twin, I'm a twin. my twin brother is a Roman Catholic priest, and he called me this morning because I know he knew I was coming here. And he said, Rob, I have to tell you, I watched a video about the named plaintiff in that case. 
and it really touched me deeply. A little bit later, Rob is telling that same story to Aunt Paulette, but he says instead that our story touched two people. So I thought, okay, well, I know you talked about your brother. Who's the second person? And then he turned to me and said, and I'm an evangelical Republican. And he shook my hand and thanked me. So that was one of those moments when, I, when it really became obvious to me that our story, John's and my story, the story of you know, all the other plaintiffs, we st struck a chord with people. People could relate to our stories. And it's that whole thing about telling your stories because that's how you change hearts and minds. And to me, that was the perfect illustration to have someone thank me an evangelical Republican, not someone I would have ever expected to do that. So that was a really meaningful moment for me to, to experience that. But sitting in the courtroom, you know, you come in and they seat you in a specific order around the sides, in the middle, and the courtroom was a lot smaller than I expected. And what I remember most is looking at the, these dark red drapes with gold fringe, and it almost felt like the Muppet Theater to me. And there, was a, and there was also kind of a sense of theater to the whole proceedings. Did they have the two old guys up in the, the, the pit? Not that I saw, but I'm sure they were there. <laughs> Maybe that was Justice Scalia. <laughs> I'll let you say that. Burn! <laughs> so, but, um, so then, you know, a buzzer goes off, we all stand, the drapes are pulled back, and the justices enter. So it's just, there's something theatrical about it. And from that point on, you know, when you go into the courtroom, you can't take anything with you. The only thing you can have with you is what you're wearing, and you can have a sheet of paper or a small notebook and a pen or a pencil. That's all you can have. So during the oral arguments, I was concentrating on trying to write down things that were said, questions that were asked. So I wasn't paying as much attention to the justices sitting at the bench as maybe I should have. Um, but really, I think the thing I remember the most, the, the conversation or the argument that really stuck with me was when Mary Bonato was, was arguing the right to marry, and I forget which of the justices said this, um, but the whole concept came up about how, you know, you're trying to change the definition of a word that we've had for millennia. Marriage has always meant, you know, a man and a woman. And, you know, there were the arguments around, well, no, it has changed. In fact, um, RBG was, I think, the one who said, no, I disagree. Marriage has changed in a lot of ways. But I think it was Scalia actually said to Mary Bonato, might have been Alito, I forget which, but taught, brought up the ancient Greeks. And they said, well, you know, we know from everything we know about the ancient Greeks from their, from their records that same-sex relationships were okay. But from everything we can tell, they did not have same-sex marriage. Well, if they're okay with same-sex relationships, why did they not have same-sex marriage? And Murray Bonato just immediately responded, Your Honor, I'm in no position to guess what ancient Greek philosophers believed or thought. And to me, that was just the perfect response because it showed the ridiculousness of that question. So, yeah, the arguments, it just came down to marriage has always been this, and this is the way it should be, even though marriage has changed. And you know, I sat there wondering, what's going to happen? I, I left the courtroom feeling pretty optimistic. I actually thought we were, we were looking at 6-3. Wow. That was just my random guess when I walked out of the courtroom. Um, but I, I was pretty optimistic. 
but I have to say that's mainly because I wasn't willing to consider the alternative. Sure, and, and I was actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I was gonna ask you about you know, what your thoughts were after you heard all of the arguments, you heard the questions, and you spent the time in the courtroom, you know, what your uh, perception of uh, your chances were. And, yeah. You know, it, it makes sense that, right, you know, the, you always have that, that positive outlook no matter what uh, because there is no other option. Um, and I even remember there were a number of us that were sort of scattered around each day that we thought there might be a decision. And we've got Twitter up with SCOTUS blog trying to read, you know, how many boxes have they gotten? We're get, trying to guess based on how many boxes they're bringing out uh, whether or not we were going to get a decision that day. Um, so I know when we actually did hear that we were going to have a decision, uh, you know, back in June uh, last year that we all were gathered around. We got very excited. And then... The moment that it kind of sunk in for some of us around was when you were on CNN and President Obama called you. Can you tell us, like, how did that happen? Did people just walk up and say, have a cell phone in their hand and say, the president's on the line for you? <laughs> Someone mentioned earlier that day, you know, we've given phone number out because depending on how things go, there are people who might want to call. And it was just this general not making a big deal out of it, but you know, we gave this number out in case someone wants to call you. So you know, we left the courtroom, I, we did our press conference, and then I had an interview with CNN. And you're right, as soon as I finish that, someone hands me this phone. And it's on speakerphone, and I'm in the midst of this enormous crowd of all of these people celebrating, trying to listen to the speakerphone, and it's the president. And it was really funny because after I hung up with the president, every single interviewer, the first question they asked was, well, what did the president say? What did you say? And I had no idea. <laughs> I couldn't remember a thing other than I remembered the president saying, you know, thank you for doing this, for helping make our country a better place. That was the only thing I could remember. I had no idea if I spoke in complete sentences. I had no idea if I was respectful and polite, I really had no clue what came out of, my, out of my mouth or what he said. And kind of one of the funny things is I was told um, later that while I was on the phone with the president, the vice president tried to call. And I did then eventually, a little bit later, got to talk to the vice president as well. So that was an amazing experience to get a phone call from our president sure. thanking me. And yeah, that that day in front of the courthouse, I'll never forget it. I mean, just the, the incredible feeling of joy and celebration and seeing tears everywhere. And it was just a beautiful, beautiful experience for me. Sure, I, I can't even imagine. I, it's gotta be you know, a, an experience too that, that so few people uh, get to have and get to share. Um, so, of course, after the decision comes down, after everything happens, uh, life did not slow down. Uh, not at all. In fact, it probably sped up, right? It did. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about what you've been doing uh, since the decision and uh, you know, sort of how the process of writing Love Wins uh, came about. Yeah. So Love Wins came about, I can't say out of the blue, but it was somewhat out of the blue. I was in D.C., and I think it was in... March or April, I forget when, and I was out for a walk. I was by the, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, and my phone rang, and it was 
a family friend. She actually used to be part of the family. She was married to Aunt Paulette's son, so she was married to John's first cousin. And she said, Jim, um, I've, been, I've built a relationship with this agent who has been pushing me to write a book. And I kept telling her I don't want to write a book until it's something that I'm passionate about. She said, your and John's story is it. This case, this fight is, is that story. So her name is Debbie Senzipper, and she's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. She works for the Washington Post. And we decided to write a book together to tell the story. And we got started almost immediately working on the proposal. So on decision day, we had the proposal ready to go. Our agent had it ready to go. And within an hour of the decision, the proposal went out to all of these different publishers. And we were able to quickly make it, sell, sell the book, and we got to work, I think, in late July or early August of last year. And it was a really aggressive time frame because HarperCollins want, wanted to publish this in advance of the year anniversary. So we were in a really tight time frame to write this book and to do all of the research and all of the interviews and all of that. So Debbie and I just got right to work. And the really good thing I can say working with Debbie is she's an investigative journalist. And she has this knack, this talent of asking me questions and pulling memories out that I don't think I would have pulled out if it weren't for her questions, the way she approached things. So she was able to, to bring things to light that were there, but I probably would have never remembered or thought of. So our process was a lot of conversations, a lot of writing back and forth, a lot of reviewing, editing, changing, then working with the publishers. And Debbie did an enormous amount or enormous number of interviews and conversations with everyone involved. I mean, the judges, the other plaintiffs, my family and friends, she really worked hard on this. And it was just a great, great experience for us working together to write this, and it's turned out incredibly well. Excellent. So that, that's kept us busy, um, kept me busy quite a bit over the past six months, um, six, seven, eight months. On top of that, you know, as soon as the decision came out, I was off and running, um, doing a lot of um, events with the Human Rights Campaign, so attending um, events, speaking, um, doing things with Equality Ohio, Equality Florida, Equality North Carolina, attending various, various galas um, where I would speak, going to, the, to Capitol Hill to lobby for the Equality Act. Um, I've gotten involved here in Cincinnati with um, Lighthouse Youth Services for their Safe and Supported organization, um, and quite a few other things. So it's, it's been a, a, a year of craziness for me. I mean, I'm doing things that I never expected or thought I would do. So the book, all of these engagements, I have a speakers bureau, so I've, I've spoken at UC, at NKU, Ohio State, Bowling Green, um, University of Florida, lots of other places. So it's been really an amazing experience for me. Sure, and it seems like uh, you're gonna be consolidating your uh, media empire here soon. I hear a <laughs> movie is in the works. Uh, and I know that you probably can't talk a whole lot about it other than there, there is maybe a movie in the works and that screenwriters may or may not have been in Cincinnati recently. <laughs> <laughs> right, um, I mean, I can talk about it. There really just isn't a whole lot 
happening on it to tell you as of, as of now. So yes, last year when we sent out the book proposal, um, at that same time, um, production companies and studios got wind of it. So we actually ended up selling the movie rights to the book before we sold the book. So Temple Hill Productions will be making the movie and Fox 2000 is the studio attached to it. So they kept saying last year when, when they bought the rights, you know, their, their general expectation was two years. So I don't know if that means next summer or maybe early 2018. Um, we have signed a screenwriter, Chris Weitz, who was the screenwriter for About a Boy and quite a few other movies. He and an associate producer came to Cincinnati um, back in March or April, and we spent several days. I showed them around the city, took them to all of those places that were part of our story, so John's childhood home, all of the, the homes John and I had owned, Spring Grove Cemetery, um, just all of those places, and he got to spend some time with Al Gerhard Stein as well. So it was a really, really good experience to, to show off the city and to give him the visuals that went along with the story. Sure, and you know, it's, it's so exciting to have Cincinnati as the backdrop for you know, so many of these things, whether it's in the book or in a movie or in really any of the other movies that have been made uh, in the region lately. It's just so cool to, to be able to see you know, our, our sleepy little river town is now this, uh, this center of the universe for this one issue. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's incredibly cool to see. I'm, I'm glad that you, you know, were able to bring those folks here and, and show off uh, you know, a part of the town that, that you're clearly uh, excited and passionate about. Yes. Absolutely. And you know, I think that's one of the things that has meant a lot to me over the past two years how many times people in Cincinnati or around Cincinnati and across Ohio simply say, thank you for being from Ohio. Because you know, I think so many times Ohioans, the state of Ohio, we, we get a bad rap. People, you know, people think we're in the middle of nowhere, that we're backward, that we, you know, we're not as with the times as perhaps we could be. And it made people happy to see, some, see couples from Cincinnati be part of this and to, to be part of this case and to have me from Cincinnati be the name and the face of it, it, it really made an impact on people across the state. And that really, that meant a lot to me that people thanked me for that and really felt like it made a difference for Cincinnati and for Ohio. Sure. So in addition to you know, all of these other things that, that you've got that have been great as part of the, the decision and part of the life after the decision, has there been anything throughout these processes that has uh, surprised you or have you learned things about yourself that you, you didn't really know that you had in there? Yes, I, I think the, the thing that surprises me more than anything is I used to kind of hold back and let John be the person leading social interactions and you know we'd go to a party or go to an event or go into a store and I was always happy to take a step back and let John be the one who went in and was the charming one the talkative one the one who started building those relationships and I know sometimes I I took advantage of that I'd let him have fun and I'd be quiet in the corner and now suddenly I find myself, that's what my life is. Going into these situations, meeting people I've never met before, having conversations, going into big social events where I'm speaking and people want to meet me, they want to talk to me, they want pictures, they want to shake my hands. 
that's been a big change for me to go from someone who really, I won't necessarily say avoided that, but I guess that's what I did. And now that's my life. So that's been a, that's been a big change for me and the fact that I'm comfortable doing it. And I don't mind, you know, when someone calls and, or sends an email or I meet someone, they're like, hey, you want to go out for coffee? You want to grab a drink? And sure, absolutely. I don't think twice about it. Sure. So that's that's been a really nice change for me personally. Yeah, it brings you out of the out of the you know shell a little bit, or you know just gets you uh, leading those interactions, which is very exciting. Real quick before we go, uh, I don't want to have any spoiler alert, spoiler alerts or anything, but was there anything in the book that we might be surprised about, or there's any interesting twists or turns that we could expect from uh, Love Wins? Well, I think you'll learn some things about Al Gerhard Stein that you don't know, um, our attorney, his background is really interesting. And I love the man. He is one of the kindest, most thoughtful people I've ever known. Brilliant. And when you learn about his childhood, his background, I think you'll, you'll, it's a good window into the type of person he has become. So for me, learning more about Al, um, and I will say there's something about, um, one of the people who argued against us that is surprising um, in, in a nice way. I mean, so look for that. Um, you'll learn something about one of, the, uh, one of the, the attorneys on the state side. Um, I'm trying to think what else might be surprising. I don't know. My, my brain is so full of stuff anymore that it's hard to remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we'll make sure that everybody uh, reads the book. We'll make sure that uh, when we do get through all of it and we get the surprises, we'll just you know, tweet you or s- send you a message <laughs> on Facebook or something that uh, gets everything out and about. Uh, the book is on shelves on June 14th. Correct. Uh, you can buy it on, where can we buy it? Um, HarperCollins.com, Amazon.com, um, and then everywhere, well, I've in bookstores on that day. So you can certainly order it in advance. And June 14th, but then on June 17th, that Friday, I'll be here in Cincinnati along with Debbie. And we have a series of events that weekend. Friday night, I'll be at Music Hall for the opera, Fellow Travelers, and I'll be signing books that evening. On Saturday, we have um, a book signing and talk at the main library downtown at 6 p.m. And on that same day at 10 p at 9 p.m. I'm sorry, 9 p.m. on Saturday, June 18th, we'll be at Below Zero Cabaret, and then from there I head up to Columbus on Sunday for some Pride events, and Debbie will be at the United um, Church of Christ in Clifton on Sunday as well. Very exciting, love it. Uh, Love Wins on shelves now, June 14th. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. We'll also put a link uh, to buy the book up on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash talking out. As always, you can tweet us and let you know what you think of the book uh, at Steve underscore Newsome, hashtag talking out. Be sure to go on to iTunes, download us, rate us, subscribe us, share us with your friends. We would love to meet new people. Jim Obergefell, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a fun conversation. Thanks, Steve. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. I've had a great time. Thanks for having me. Excellent. All right, that's it. Jim Obergefell, Love Wins, On Shelves, June 14th. Thanks, and as always, have a great day. All right, so you said that...